0: Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 103, Islamic History, 624, The Battle of Badr, Part 3. Alright, so one duel had been completed, and Hamza was the last man standing. But there would be many more. Because... Shockingly, even after seeing this, there were more brave men in the Meccan ranks, and they came out to challenge the Muslims to single combat. So, who were these guys? Who were these headstrong and arguably foolish men? Was it Abu Jahl, who was the instigator of this entire battle in a lot of ways? No, it was not. Was it the man who was seeking vengeance for his brother, who was killed in the earlier Muslim raid? Um, nope, it was not him either. Now, ironically, or perhaps fittingly, the one who stepped forward was the very man who did not even want this battle in the first place.
1: outba ibn Rabia. And the
0: reason given for this bold move in the histories is because he was going to show Abu Jal that he was no coward, that he would fight for his family's honor or his clan's honor or whatever it was that Abu Abu Jal had been making fun of. So Outba steps forward, and then, again, ironically or perhaps fittingly, he is joined by his brother, Sheba and his son,
1: Walid. So,
0: how does an otherwise intelligent man go from thinking that the war is a bad idea one day, and then the next day, he becomes so fervent, so gung-ho about it, that he wants to put his entire family on the line? War does crazy things to people. Or maybe he was still drunk. Who knows, really? But Abu Jahl may have really needled Outba in a vulnerable place, figuratively speaking, not literally, of course. And he reacted like an emotional child rather than a responsible leader. And he dragged his entire family along with him. So now we had the first three combatants it would be Outba his brother, and his son. And I really cannot believe someone in the Meccan ranks didn't step forward to stop this insanity. But really, the ones holding back, they were probably the smart ones. I mean, really, why put your family out there if his family was willing to do it? Now, this being a duel they obviously needed some opponents. And so some Muslims came forward and volunteered. At First, there was Alf. He was of the Khazraj tribe of Medina. He was one of the first six in Medina to pledge himself to Muhammad. And then there was his brother, Muawid, And then a third man came forward, Abd Allah ibn Rawah. But there seemed to be an agreement that this just wasn't really a good idea. An agreement both between the Meccans and Muhammad. And they were thinking that, if possible, even at this point, this should remain an intra-tribe conflict for as long as possible. Intra meaning all within the Quraysh. And to us, this seems dumb in retrospect because the only way that would end up mattering is if the duels end and no actual battle takes place. Perhaps they were still hopeful of that, but again, full bias admitted here, you know, from my lofty perch in the future of 1400 years, this looks immensely ridiculous. So they do it anyway. They, they decide, Hey, we're going to keep this within the tribe. So, the original volunteers were pulled back in favor of Quraishi men. And in this case, Hamza would be fighting another duel and he would be joined by Ali. And that's not just any Ali, it's the Ali, as in Muhammad's cousin, sort of son, and later brother in law. And then there would also be Obeda ibn al Harith. Obeda was a relative of Muhammad's. So, This family quarrel would be as narrow as possible. This would be the family of Outba versus the family of Muhammad. I'll let you take a wild guess which one came out on
1: top. The warriors
0: had been chosen and the duels began. And they began one-on-one, but also by whatever rules they were actually willing to follow here. Technically, this was supposed to be a three-on-three contest. So, if you killed one opponent, you basically had an instant three-on-two power play, and so on. Theoretically, the duel would be a team victory. Hamza and Ali, they won their individual contests, and pretty quickly. And the only Mekan still left fighting was Outba against Ubeda. It appears that the two, while still fighting one on one, they both struck likely fatal blows on each other. But both were still alive. So Hamza and Ali went over and they killed Utba. And he was probably dead anyway. But just like that, one of the few level headed, level headed and powerful, um, but still one of the major men of the Meccan delegation was dead. And if you watched the movie The Messenger from back in the day, uh, I did a podcast about it way back in the beginning. Understand that none of this is portrayed historically as it was. I think Hamza actually kills Utdala. It just works better that way. You know, and the, the team nature of the battle, I think the filmmakers just decided that was too complicated. But what I just told you, Historically, as far as we can tell, that's the best version of what happened. Now, Otbah was dead, and so were a couple of his family members. Now, did I mention that one of Otbah's sons happened to be in the Muslim ranks? Can you even imagine what it was like to watch three of his family members killed in this way by his friends and fellow believers? But this was a new social order, or at least it was supposed to be. Supposed to be a new structure, a new bond for the people of Arabia. Because they would be brothers in faith. Your Muslim brother was more your brother than your actual brother or father. That is, if they were pagans. Now the Muslims had won this duel. But, like I said, Obeda, he was horribly injured so hamza and ali they dragged their wounded family member back to the muslim lines obeda would die from that injury which was to his leg and he would be the first muslim casualty but as far as the duels went on the meccan side this was starting to look really one-sided at this point because First, there were the men who tried to draw from the wells prior to the battle. And then the first man Hamza had killed. And the three men, the family of Utbah, killed in the duels. And then there were more duels after this. And the Muslims won most of those. And on a practical level, this really was a poor strategy from the Meccans. Because just think about Their army versus the Muslim army. They had the numbers, right? Now, duels are by their nature fair. Duels do not exploit that advantage. So, to anyone thinking militarily and just cold bloodedly about this, it must have been a gigantic relief when the two sides started firing arrows at each other, and an even larger relief when the Meccans charged the Muslims which was their first competent move in the entire sequence of this battle. So the armies would soon charge at each other. But remember, this is Badr where things tend to unfold slowly. And at some point, according to the Muslim accounts, before this happened, Muhammad gives a brief speech where He promises paradise to anyone slain in the upcoming battle. And some were exceptionally excited at this prospect, uh, to the point you could argue that after this speech, they were almost suicidally enthusiastic about this battle. Here's an interesting scene before the thick of the battle. Now, you may remember ALF, You know, he was from the Khazraj tribe of Medina. He was the first to volunteer for the duels, but he had to be pulled back because he was not of the Quraysh. Well, according to the early histories, there actually was a brief conversation between Muhammad and Alf before the thick of the battle started. And it tends to go something like this.
1: The young man, Alf,
0: asks, what makes God really, really happy? What makes him smile? And then Muhammad says, when a man plunges into the middle of the enemy without armor. Now, I think the idea here, the virtue being shown, is that of courage, of trust in God, either that he will win the battle or go to paradise as a martyr. So, ever the gung-ho warrior, and in a scene kind of reminiscent of Luke Skywalker turning off his targeting computer in the original Star Wars, Alf takes off his mail, his armor, and he decides to fight without it. And when the sides, soon afterward, when they charge into a traditional old world battle, Alf is one of the first to be killed. So Alf was one of the first Muslim casualties, and another one was a young man named Omer, who apparently, when the battle started, he threw down his food. He was so eager to get into battle that he wasn't even going to finish eating. And again, he was eating, (laughs) just to give you an idea of the pace of the battle here. But he was thrilled at the specter of paradise following death. And, of course, his life on Earth would only last a few more minutes. And these two young men are great examples of one of the major advantages that the Muslims had in this battle. Because fervor, particularly religious fervor, it is a potent battlefield weapon. Now, as far as moral judgments, I'll leave you to decide whether Muhammad was wielding this power responsibly. But in a religious sense, one takeaway I have from that story is the extremely fine line, in many circumstances, the fine line between martyrdom and suicide. You see this with Christian saints, too. Really, at what point is a situation so dangerous that you were basically committing suicide by heathen. The old world saintly version of death by cop, I guess you could call it. You know, it's not a suicide because they're killing me, but really, is it? You know, are you being martyred or are you trying to die? And does such a situation exist? <laughs> and where do you draw the line between the martyrdom that takes you to heaven and the suicide that brings you to hell? Now, In the more Islamic framework of martyrdom, was Alf a reckless, suicidal youth? Or was the decision to shed his armor and to trust in God, was it admirable and a sign of great faith? But again, at what point is it blasphemous and sinful to treat your own life with a certain level of contempt? or a certain level of recklessness. One thing is for sure though, particularly in this age where battle was more physical, before guns and artillery and air support, when you actually had to cut open your opponent. In that context, religious fervor can be an extreme advantage. And, I'm sure that Alf and Umari were not the only ones running around like lunatics charging straight at the enemy. It's hard to prepare for something like that. Sometimes one side just really, really wants it more. And on certain occasions, that can be enough. And worse for the Meccans, at least according to Muslim sources, Gabriel himself would be fighting in this battle with a legion of angels. Now, whether that is true or not, the Muslims probably fought as if it was true. And that probably made a gigantic difference. I actually, I'm sure that made a gigantic difference. So, back to the actual battle. I promised you some action. Here it is. The Meccans charged. And while the Meccans were charging, rather than just hanging back, the Muslims charged back at them. And in the midst of this slow-moving battle, Muhammad said something to the effect of, God, we need to win this battle. If we do not win this battle, no one will be left to worship you. So the Muslims charge. And they were charging with sort of the standard melee weapons of this era. And that fervor I talked to you about, that's why this is important. The sheer recklessness or bravery, whatever you want to call it, it quickly broke the Meccan lines. I mean, if there were any lines at all. Um, But really, any organization that they had was shattered. Now, don't think of this as some kind of terribly disciplined professional army. I doubt this was anything like a Roman line or a Greek phalanx. They didn't even seem to have a united command. But it was still a thousand people theoretically moving in the same direction. And that would not be true after the Muslim countercharge.
1: And soon the Meccans
0: were on the run, which ended pretty much any hope of actually winning the battle. Because the way ancient battles worked was, once you break their lines and you get them fleeing, that was when you hacked up as many soldiers as you could before they got away. Because once an opposing army lost its footing like that, it was an opportunity that needed to be ruthlessly exploited. You even see this in modern times, because as George Patton would have put it, here's where we hold them by the nose
1: and kick them in the ass.
0: There would be no chance to surround the enemy and completely obliterate them, which is always a goal. But this was the next best thing, and it was a pretty bloody retreat. In some ways, the Meccans did pretty well, considering how poorly they fought. And, of course, there was also the added handicap that they were fleeing back into the desert without water. In the end, Meccan casualties are usually said to be around 70 men, which is less than 10%. Now, for a short battle, maybe that wasn't very good, but it was hardly a total loss. And in addition to that, there were 70 prisoners captured. Most of these men would survive, but a few ended up being executed. And we'll, we'll get to that later. But for most of the prisoners, Instead of a traditional ransom, they would be set free if they could teach 10 Muslims to read. I'm not really sure what became of the illiterates. There must have been some. But what was new here is that no one killed common Meccans just for revenge purposes. Now, that's the common Meccans. For the really intransigent enemies of Islam, things would be much,
1: much worse.
0: For one, there was a fellow named Umayyah ibn Khalaf. You might remember his name, but probably not. I mean, I wouldn't. Don't feel bad about it. These names can really run together. There's no shame in that. But I don't even name him again. Let's just say this guy. This guy was Bilal's master. That's how you should remember him. Now, if you don't remember Bilal... He was the slave that Abu Bakr bought from his master while he was torturing him to death. Well, in this battle, Bilal certainly got the last laugh there. His former master had survived the battle, but Bilal would receive the pleasure of killing him soon afterward. Now, Remember, this was a guy who was probably responsible for many Muslim deaths and ruthless persecutions. So I get it. And it wasn't like there was some formal taking of this guy as a prisoner and and an organized execution. From what I've read, it just looks like Bilal and some of his friends rushed the person guarding this guy. And they killed him right after the battle. And really, if you're in charge, do you even tell Muhammad that this happened? And would Muhammad have done anything? I really can't imagine Bilal being punished under the
1: circumstances. And then
0: there was the most prominent casualty of the battle. Now, you heard about Otbah and his family, and there would be plenty of high-class casualties that day. Um, To the point that after this, Abu Sufyan was pretty much the lone power broker in Mecca. It was that bad. But the most prominent figure of all, the man who insisted on this battle, Abu Jahl, he was killed sometime during the battle, reportedly by a pair of somewhat obscure young men. Not Ali or Hamza or anyone like that, but reportedly... His head was cut off and
1: brought to Muhammad.
0: And speaking of Hamza and Ali, their efforts as individuals in this battle are said to be massive. I mean, really massive. Ali, in particular, is said to have killed 35 Meccans. That's half. Of course, seriously, yeah, I doubt it. I, I really doubt that's true. I mean, it could be if he was some kind of prodigy when it came to wielding a sword, but given the short battle and his, I don't know, that just seems extremely unlikely to me and very extremely unlikely to, um, at least let's say non-Muslim historians dismiss that
1: entirely. And on the
0: Muslim side, When I tell you this, keep in mind, the Meccans had 70 dead and 70 captured. And after all of that, you know how many Muslims died? 14. Enough that they could put a pretty nice monument to them right on the spot in Saudi Arabia with all their names. Um, It actually wouldn't really be that hard to memorize all 14 of these people. Just 14 men that's just so extraordinary given the reckless nature of these warriors and the fact that they were outnumbered 3 to 1 i mean really 14 after arrow volleys and being charged by a numerically superior enemy that is extraordinary and it does lead me to believe that the time between the and charge And the Meccan retreat was probably very short because if the Muslims actually absorbed a charge and pushed it back 14, that's almost impossible. How bad were the Meccan archers and the Meccan fighters? It's just stunning. And I'm sure the Muslims
1: saw it that way too.
0: so when it was all over there was absolutely no way that this event was going to be interpreted as anything other than a gigantic and complete blessing from god i mean if i was there i would have thought the same thing this was a spectacular upset and in history it belongs with those How on earth did they do that in battles? Which makes it a bit stunning that no one in my part of the world, unless you're a Muslim, of course, no one around here has any idea what took place at Badr. Yes, it was a short battle, but in historical terms, it belongs in the same conversation as the other improbable, how on earth did that happen, type of military victories. It's not quite the greatest upset in history, more of a moderate to major upset. But it's never really talked about in the same way as those classic underdog battles like the Spartans at Thermopylae or Arminius in the German forest, Henry V at Agincourt, Cortez and the Aztecs. You know, those massive, massive upsets in battles that would have seemed on paper to be impossible, or at least unlikely. And those, like Botter, are also well known for changing the trajectory
1: of history.
0: So the Battle of Botter, you know, it wasn't quite as impossible as some of the battles I just mentioned, but it's still stunning that this Story is not general knowledge, even among, say, history junkies like me. Your average history junkie, you come to them with Badr, they probably aren't going to know what that is, at least in my part of the world. And it's certainly not general knowledge among the non history junkie public. Because really, can you imagine you just ask an average person on the street, at least in a non Muslim country, you say, Who fought in the Battle of Badr? the percentage of people who could answer that would probably be in the single digits. It just never really got into the Western bloodstream. So it's kind of an unknown battle in many parts of the world, but every part of the world is currently living with the aftershocks of Botter. Yes, it happened in a geographic and cultural backwater, but it wouldn't be a geographic and cultural backwater for very long. Thank you,
1: and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.